0: You're listening to the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. Genesis, chapter 5. Over 80% of this chapter follows a formula where it talks about a certain person living so many years Tells you that they had a kid, then after that kid, they live even more years, they have more kids, and then they die. 28 out of 32 verses in this chapter are simply following that formula beat for beat. What could we possibly talk about in a chapter like this? Well, actually, quite a bit. So if you're used to zoning out during Bible genealogies, get ready for a surprise. This chapter is anything but boring. Let's talk about why this chapter exists at all. If you are viewing this as a story, most stories don't start off relatively early on with a long list of people in a family. If you open a novel, you don't usually get a family tree. Unless maybe you're reading like a special edition of Lord of the Rings or something that has a lot of extra features like that. It's just not common that you're going to open up a story and there's almost an entire chapter just dedicated to this person had this kid and then they lived this long and then they died. And their son had this many kids and they lived this long and they died. But that's the formula of this whole chapter. So why stop a story that we have going on from chapters one through four? I know four had a little bit of a genealogy, but, you know, four still kind of carried along the the story pretty well. So why stop that? to put this in when Chapter 6 is just going to keep the story going, especially since a lot of these people don't really matter to the story. And we know Adam, we know Seth a little bit, and maybe you've heard of someone like Enoch or Methuselah, just if you've been in Sunday school, because they kind of stand out in the genealogy. But none of these people really matter that much to the story until you get to Noah. So what's the point of having them here at all? That is a great question that many people have spent a lot of time trying to answer. For a lot of people, this kind of chapter in the Bible serves no purpose other than to present a timeline of history. In other words, they add up all of the dates from these people's lives and try to construct an age for human history. And a lot of times they'll try to take it all the way back to creation, and they try to create a timeline of events for the entire Bible and humanity as a whole. Now, a lot of those people will say that creation then happened somewhere between six to 10,000 years ago. But that's not the point of having these names and numbers. And there's at least three problems with taking that pursuit. First problem is that some people think that these numbers could be symbolic. This is particularly possible when you have round numbers in the Bible, something that ends in a zero. Like, a lot of times you'll have the number 40 that will show up in journeys, like somebody goes on a 40-day and 40-night journey, or the Israelites being in the wilderness for 40 years, or you'll get 400 years. There's good reason to think that numbers like that may just be round numbers, saying that people were going for a long journey. Some people even think that's true of the number three. When you get a lot of stories in the Bible that include people going on a three days journey. So it's possible that numbers like this could have some sort of symbolic meaning to them, particularly if they end in like a zero or a five, a big round number in that way. Now, although not every number in this list ends in five or zero, there are some significant patterns that could fit that as well, and we'll get to that in just a second. But that's one reason why you might not want to try to reconstruct the timeline of human history from this. It's possible that the numbers are kind of round numbers in that way. Another reason is that Bible genealogies are more about theology than they are the specifics of history. Bible genealogies often skip generations, or they only include specific people in order to prove a point. A great example of this is the genealogy at the very beginning of Matthew. Usually we only turn to the start of Matthew for the Christmas story, and even then we go in chapter 2 because the very beginning is this long genealogy with a lot of different names. And Matthew makes a point that there were 14 generations in three sets. The problem is, if you actually compare his genealogy, his family tree, list of names, all the same thing, If you compare that to the ones that we have in the Tanakh, Matthew skips certain generations in order to get to his point that there were 14. Now, to us as a modern audience, we would look at that and say, that's not historically accurate. That's not okay. You can't just skip a generation so that you can have a nice round number that you want. But we have to remember that we're not dealing with a modern book that was trying to tell history the way that we would tell it. Matthew had a theological point that he was trying to make, that Jesus was like King David. He was like the new David coming in with a new kingdom for Israel. Now, why he wanted to prove that by having 14 generations is a matter that I'll actually touch on in just a second here. So if you're wondering what the connection is there, just hold on. We're going to get to that. But I bring it up to show you that these are not discrepancies in the Bible. It's not Matthew didn't know his history, and so he missed a couple generations. It's that he was actually trying to prove some sort of theological point about who Jesus was. And to do so, he had to represent the history a little bit differently. And that would have been completely acceptable in an ancient mindset. People just would have understood when they were hearing this that they weren't getting the kind of history textbook that we would expect. They were looking for a story that was going to have some sort of a point. So it's always possible when you have a genealogy in the Bible that names and generations as a whole could be skipped in order to prove a point. And especially in something like with Matthew, where he has the pattern of 314s, here in Genesis 5, we actually have 10 very specific names that are mentioned. So it is very possible that in order to get the round number of 10, the author skipped certain generations, and that was just okay for his time. A third reason you might not want to try to construct a timeline of human history from these numbers is that there's actually no consensus on what the numbers are. Now you might hear that and go, Colin, you're crazy. All I have to do is open up my Bible and I can read so-and-so lived this many years. And it's pretty consistent across any English Bible. Yes, but. There's always a but, right? The majority of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, was written in Hebrew, the language of the Jews. It was an ancient script of Hebrew. It's a little bit different from modern Hebrew today. And there are a few small sections that were written in Aramaic, but that's a whole other issue for another day. It's a very similar language to Hebrew. It's kind of like how Portuguese and Spanish have a lot of overlap. So does Hebrew and Aramaic. But as time went on, after the divided kingdom, so we're talking after the days of Saul, David, Solomon, in Solomon's sons' days, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom split. Pretty early on, Israel is taken into captivity by the reigning power of the day, the superpower the empire of the day was Assyria. So they took the northern kingdom of Israel, and those tribes never came back from their captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah went into Babylonian exile. This is when you have the stories of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, even around the time of Esther and Nehemiah, Ezra, etc. Even the last few prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they were all around that same time. Well, as the people start to go back into their land, like you have at the end of Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra and those prophets, a lot of them didn't speak or read Hebrew. There was an entire generation that had grown up in Babylon. They didn't know their heritage. They didn't know their culture the same way. And as Babylon fell to the Persian Empire, the Persians fell to the Greeks. Major oversimplification of history, I know, but that's not the focus of the podcast here. You have the Greek Empire take over, which then eventually kind of fell to Rome for the time of Jesus. But in the 400-ish years in between the Tanakh, the Old Testament stories, and the New Testament time of Jesus, you have quite a bit of Greek rule. And that was just the lingua franca of the day. Like, that's kind of the case for English. In most places of the world, you're going to find some bit of English culture today, or some people who speak English, or maybe they use the U.S. dollar. That's what Greek was for the ancient world at the time that the captivity ended for the southern kingdom of Judah. When they're going back into their land, everybody knows Greek. So the Jewish scribes, wanting to preserve their heritage, had to adapt with the times. And so they translated their sacred texts from Hebrew into Greek. Now, most of what we have for Old Testament texts in Hebrew is collected in one big group that's called the Masoretic Text or the M.T., don't worry, there's no test at the end of this, so you don't need to know that if it doesn't matter that much to you. But it is kind of important for what I'm getting to here. So you have the Masoretic text as the name for the Hebrew Old Testament that most of our Bibles rely on when they're translating from Hebrew into whatever language. But when that was translated into Greek, it was called the Septuagint, where it's often abbreviated LXX, Roman numerals for 70, because there were 70 Jewish scholars or scribes who worked on this translation. So if you ever see that LXX that means the Septuagint, it means the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now the New Testament was written in Greek as well, because that was just the language of the day. Interestingly enough, as a side note, the Septuagint is probably the Bible that Jesus and the disciples would have used. Since they were living post-exile, it seems very possible that they would have been more familiar with the Greek translation of their Hebrew scriptures than with the original Hebrew themselves. And this actually plays out quite a bit whenever you see a passage in the New Testament that quotes something from the Old Testament, but the quote is just a little bit off. This happens a lot in Paul's writings and even in some of the Gospels where there's some allusion to an Old Testament reference. Maybe you have a study Bible that tells you which verse, so you look up the verse in the Old Testament and you kind of go back and forth and you're like, these aren't actually the exact same. They kind of say something different. If you know, you know. If you haven't caught that before, keep an eye out for it because it actually happens quite a bit. And 90% of the time, the reason for that discrepancy is going to be because the Old Testament that you're reading was translated off of the Hebrew, and the Old Testament that they were quoting was based off of the Greek. And sometimes there's just differences when you translate language to language. Uh, And sometimes the Septuagint just straight out changed some stuff as well. So that adds in a whole interesting debate about translations and Bible versions when you realize that the Bible that Jesus and the disciples would have used actually had some significant differences from the Hebrew Old Testament that we base our English translations on. That's a whole other issue for another day. Just wanted to throw that out there. To add something else into the mix is that there was a Samaritan version of the Septuagint. Around the time of Nehemiah, the Samaritans break off from the Jews as a whole, and that's where you get into the whole Samaritan-Jew controversy at the time of Jesus, where nobody likes a Samaritan, and the Samaritans don't like the Jews, so they just fight with each other. And that's when you get Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. You get him telling the story uh, of the Samaritan who helped out the Jew, uh, who was beaten on the side of the road, often called the Good Samaritan story. That whole conflict comes from the time in between the two testaments. And the Samaritans went and created their own translation of Hebrew, this time into Samaritan dialect, of not the entire Tanakh or Old Testament, but the first five books of it, what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, so it's often called the Samaritan Pentateuch. So you have three different main textual traditions that you can look at here for the Hebrew Masoretic of the Old Testament, the Samaritan Pentateuch, and the Greek Septuagint. And would you believe that all three of them have different numbers in some of these people's ages. And so you have to ask, which one is the one to go with? That gets into some really nerdy stuff that the average person is not going to be interested in or even able to deal with since we're dealing with some really old languages. And when you deal with numbers in some of these old languages, it can get funky really fast. So most people just default to the Hebrew Masoretic since that's considered to be kind of the majority consensus of what it should be. But you also have to wrestle with the fact that the Bible Jesus would have read had some different numbers here, so is there some legitimacy to that? You also can't just write off an entire group's tradition, like the Samaritan Pentateuch, just because it doesn't quite match up with yours. So, which one is it? Well, that's something that scholars fight over, and there's not exactly a clear consensus here. I I do want to say, there's not a huge difference in the numbers. It's not like the Hebrew has them living... You know, 900 years, and the Septuagint has them living 80 years, okay? They're still very long lifespans, and it's just a few small differences. Like, maybe this guy lived 980 years in the Hebrew version, and in the Greek version it says that he lived uh, 962 years or something, you yeah, know, so it's still pretty close. But it's just worth considering that if there are these differences in textual traditions— Maybe the point is not for us to construct a timeline of human history down to the exact day. I think I mentioned before a guy by the name of Bishop Usher, Archbishop Usher. He created a timeline of human history based on the genealogies of the Bible. If you have an old Schofield reference Bible, you probably have dates at the top of each page. Uh, That's drawing off of Usher's system. I'm sure some other study Bibles do that too. Some people find that helpful to get a general idea of when the events on a page of their Bible happened. But it's still fallible. The work that he did was a little bit overly simplistic. Archbishop Usher went a little too far with it. He actually thought he could get to the exact day and general time of day that creation happened. So he went a little whack on that. I bring all this up because a lot of people come to a text like this. With the idea that I have to get something out of this. Maybe they're reading a devotional or they just have some sort of a read through the Bible in a year plan. And so they get to Genesis 5 and they think, I have to find some sort of deeper spiritual meaning, some sort of nugget of truth I can get for my daily devotions or what have you. And so they're trying to read something into a chapter like this that just isn't there. You don't have to try to reconstruct human history based off of these names. There's a greater purpose for that. And we'll get to what that is as we continue in the lesson today. It's really easy to get lost in all the names and numbers that are here and what exactly is trying to be said. But when we zoom out, view this from a bird's eye perspective, we can get a clearer picture of the stuff that we're supposed to catch. So don't get lost in the forest here. Don't keep your head down and try to find something hidden in the weeds. Try to actually step back and and look above the trees, try to climb one of them and see what's the actual big picture of the forest here. Like the very fact that there are 10 names. With the list of Cain's descendants that we had in the previous chapter, chapter 4, we had six descendants of Cain, which I noted was probably significant with the difference between six and seven in in Bible meaning of, of six often having a, a negative connotation, seven having a positive one. So you have six descendants of Cain, the bad guy in the story, it only makes sense. And here we find ten names in this genealogy. Now ten in the Bible often has kind of a completeness idea to it, where it's telling you the whole story. So even if there wasn't just ten generations, even if there were actually twenty in here, it was shortened to ten to give you the idea that this is the overarching cliff notes of human history at that time. And people just go crazy trying to figure out a hidden meaning, and so they miss This kind of thing. They miss the overall patterns that are written into the text to give it a beauty. And it's just like dissecting a butterfly a lot of times. A butterfly can be beautiful out in the wild. But if you ever had to pin it up on a board for a high school science class or something, it loses something of its beauty. You have to kill the butterfly in order to observe it like that. And so I think a lot of people, in trying to find beauty or meaning in this kind of passage, they end up killing the butterfly And they miss the point entirely. A lot of times this happens by their trying to find a hidden meaning in the names or the numbers of the text. A good example of trying to find a hidden meaning in the names is a guy by the name of Chuck Missler. Now, if you are of my generation, you may not know the name Chuck Missler. If you are of any generation prior to me, you probably do. Chuck Missler was a very prolific author. He was popular in the 90s. He passed away, I think, in the 2010s. He definitely helped some people. But there were also a lot of things that he got wrong. He was a big advocate of the whole Y2K thing. I don't think he intended to lean into it as much as many of his followers did. But people took that too far and became extremely anxious, thinking the world was going to end in the year 2000 and all of our computers were going to shut down. So he was kind of running around those circles. If you know anything about like Hal Lindsey or Tim LaHaye, it's kind of those circles. He wrote a lot about prophecy and what he saw as end time stuff. And he advocated a view of hidden codes in this specific genealogy here in chapter 5. And so he would try to look at dictionary definitions of the meaning of the names of these people. So he would pull out a basic Bible dictionary and say, what's the meaning of the name Adam? What's the meaning of the name Seth? What's the meaning of the name Enos or Canaan? So forth and so on down the list. And by looking at each of those, he tried to piece together some hidden Jesus code from this passage. In fact, he said that he could Put them all together. You can look this up if you want. It's online. Just type in Chuck Missler, Genesis 5, and I'm sure you'll find it. He said that the hidden message of this chapter, just based off of the names of the people, was man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. And then he tried to point to Jesus from that and say this was some hidden message about Jesus here in Genesis 5. That all of these people's names meant that one day Jesus is going to come and give rest to his people. And hopefully you're rolling your eyes a little bit now. Or going, what in the world? Because that's the correct reaction. (laughs) That's not okay. That is not at all what was intended with this passage. And Brother Missler's views just don't hold up at all. And unfortunately, I just, I can't advocate his interpretive style. This is not the only place that he did that. I would not recommend following anyone who does that kind of interpretation. If you'd like a little more on this, Michael Heiser, I've recommended him before for Supernatural Worldview stuff, talking about the Divine Council and God and the gods in the Bible. He's famous for all of that stuff. Michael Heiser actually has an article online, I'll link it in the show notes, where he addresses why Brother Missler's view is just not possible at all. It's actually really poor interpretation. So anyone who tries to find hidden meaning in a genealogy based on the names of the people is not doing faithful exegesis. I would run from that kind of view if I were you. Then there are other people who look not at the names but at the numbers, and they try to find meaning in the numbers. This is a practice called gematria. Gematria means that you assign numerical value to the letters of the alphabet, and it's usually for the purpose of finding some hidden meaning. So for example, if we were to do this in English, A would equal 1, B would equal 2, C would equal 3, so forth and so on. And then you add up the letters in the person's name, and you somehow try to get a message out of that. You don't even have to look for this on the internet. A lot of times it will find you. If you have enough in your search history about the Bible or Christianity, something is going to end up in your Facebook or Instagram feed or something like that of somebody talking about this kind of thing. Some hidden message in the Bible based on the gematria, the meaning behind the words. That's something you should be very, very cautious about. It's not entirely illegitimate, but if you're finding it online, it's probably being taken too far. It was a very common method of Jewish Kabbalistic interpretation, which is a whole different sect of Judaism from ancient times. It gets into some weird stuff they did a lot of gematria. And so they mean well, they're trying to find some meaning. You know, same thing we talked about earlier. You're you're coming to this for your devotions or what have you. You're doing your daily Bible study. You're like, I'm supposed to get something out of this. My preacher has said I can get something out of every page of the Bible. What am I supposed to get out of this? And so they just they dig and they dig and they dig and they miss the point by a mile because they're trying to find something hidden that actually isn't there. It's well-meaning people a lot of times. It's not like they're necessarily trying to deceive you, but they just get so caught up in something that sounds too good to be true with some of these wacky messages. And you can find all kinds of stuff online of people talking about why this isn't a great thing to do. If you take this too far, you can find hidden messages in literally anything. There was a whole thing called the Bible Code. I think it was popular around the early 2000s, where people actually tried to find hidden messages about 9-11 and all this in the Bible. If you put the the words in a certain order, and basically they made like a, a crossword puzzle <laughs> out of the words of the Bible. And then they were drawing lines horizontally, diagonally, and finding all these hidden things. I think someone found something about President Obama. and you know, all this. It gets into wacky stuff that just, that's not the point of the Bible. One of my favorite examples of this is somebody wanted to prove the ridiculousness of it, so they did the same thing with Moby Dick. They took the book, Moby Dick, and applied the same principle to it of trying to find hidden messages in the numerical meanings of the words. And they did. They found some really wacky stuff. And so then other people got on that and said that Moby Dick was a divinely inspired book as well. So you just can't win with that. So if you see something like this, it's probably better to ignore I will say that sometimes gematria is actually a legitimate thing that does show up in the Bible, but not in the form you're going to find online. The best example I can give you for this is actually Matthew chapter 1. See, I told you that would come back. In Matthew 1, we talked about how he has these sets of 14 in the genealogy of Jesus, and that he was trying to prove through that a theological point that Jesus was like a new David. Why would 14 do that? Well, if you add up the numbers of David's name in Hebrew Gematria, you get 14. It's an oversimplification, and it's hard to explain in English, but basically the Hebrew for D would be 4, and then the V in it would be 6. You don't count the vowels. That's a whole other thing in Hebrew, but you would get 4. So basically you get DVD for David. 4, 6, and 4, it's 14. That's why Matthew was so focused on getting 14 generations each time. So that's an example where Gematria actually does work in the Bible. Another big example of this that people are familiar with, but they don't even realize they're familiar with, is 666 in Revelation. This is a whole other conversation for another day. But whatever you think the mark of the beast in 666 is, it's probably not what you're thinking. And it's definitely not what you've been told in most churches. It's probably an example of Gematria that lines up with the Roman emperor's names of that day. Again, whole other conversation. That's a rabbit trail you can go down. I would not recommend searching that one online. Look for maybe a good commentary or something that would explain that. But we'll, we'll get to that at some time in the future. Gematria is not in and of itself evil, but the kind of version that you're going to be able to find easily touted by someone on your social media platform or a website that looks like it has been updated in 20 years, probably the kind of thing that you should avoid and definitely the kind of thing that you should not give time to for chapter 5. It's not here. That's not what's happening in this chapter. Uh, Some people have actually taken that, but not quite that far, and they've tried to detect not a word meaning in the numbers, but a pattern. There was an Italian rabbi from the early 1900s named Umberto Casuto, and he did a lot of really important Bible study. He pointed out that all of the numbers that we have here in the Masoretic version what most of our English Bibles will have, are multiples of five, so they're either going to end with the number five or zero, except for just a few, and with those few, you can add either the number seven or the number 14 to it and get the number of that person's age. I realize this might be a little hard to understand listening to, so I will put all kinds of stuff in the show notes where you can see this out in front of you. But six of the ten names, so over half of the names, are multiples of five, so they end in either five or zero. Adam dies at 930 years, Enosh at 905, Canaan at 910, Mahalel at 895, Enoch 365, and Noah at 950. So those are nice round numbers. But then you have a few that don't quite match that. So you go, what do you do with that? Well, if you add seven, remember that seven is significant in the Bible, especially after the seven days of creation. If you add seven to a multiple of five, you'll get that. For example, Seth. Seth lived to 912. If you have 905 plus 7, that's 912. Jared lived to 962. 955 plus 7 is 962. Same thing with Lamech. 777 years. 770 plus 7 is 777. And then you get one. Methuselah is the odd man out. He lived 969 years. What do you do with that? Well, if you double the 7, 14, 969. So you get 955 plus 14, 969. So what's the meaning of that? Not anything crazy. And I know that can get really confusing with all those numbers. It's just trying to show you that there may be a pattern here at work, not necessarily a deeper meaning, but that these numbers aren't random. It's not like it said somebody lived 124 years, and then the next guy lived 657 And you know, there's just absolutely no pattern to the numbers, which is how I think a lot of people will come to this text is they just get all jostled in the numbers and they don't see any kind of significant pattern. It does seem like there is a pattern. What exactly it might mean? Not really that clear, not really that important because that's not the main focus of the text. But I do think it's important to realize that it is there. These are not necessarily random numbers. There is something going on here with them. Okay, we have spent enough time talking about what not to look for in this chapter. Let's actually start to talk about some of the stuff that you can get out of this. One of the most significant details that a lot of people kind of realize, but they don't realize that they've realized, (laughs) is the similarities between Cain's genealogy in Chapter 4 and Seth's in Chapter 5. See, by the time you get to Chapter 5, you're going, didn't I read some of these names before? Yes, and there's actually a point to that. See, we're given six descendants of Cain, but we're given eight descendants of Seth. What's really weird is that the middle six names in the line of Seth, numbers two through seven, are almost identical to the six names in Cain's list. This list adds Enos at the beginning and Noah at the end, but the middles match almost exactly with only two names out of order. The names of Cain... And Canaan, or Canaan, depending on your translation, same guy. Cain in Cain's line, and Canaan, or Canaan in Seth's line, are really similar. Then you have an Enoch in both lines. You have Yerad and Yered in the two lines, or Irad and Jared in most English ones. You have Mehuyel, sounding like the third descendant of Seth's line, Mahalaleel. And then you have Methushael and Methuselah and both lines even have a lamech in them. So there's all these different similarities, and I think there's actually a purpose for that, is to say that it's not always easy to tell the difference between the line of the woman and the line of the serpent. We've been talking about that since chapter 3, where God told Eve that there would be an ongoing struggle between humans who live out the way of the serpent, deceiving and destroying each other, devouring each other, and the line of the woman that's willing to bring life. Remember, Eve's name meant life. So they're bringing life into life. They're bringing life into situations. And sometimes it's not always easy to tell on the surface whether a person is bringing death or bringing life into a situation. Sometimes, if we're honest, we've done both. On good days, we bring more life. On bad days, we add to the death, the badness that goes on in the world. And I think the similarity between these names, you have Enoch's in both, you have Cain and Cain and Lamech's in both, I think it's to tell you that you don't always realize who's good and who's bad. Sometimes the lines intermix and they seem very similar. And at the end of the day, any one of us can be the kind of person who brings life or who brings death into a situation. It all depends on the choice that you make for that day. Uh, Some people even look at the similarities of the names and think that they may be two versions of the same family line. And different traditions had it coming from different people. One tradition said it was Seth's, the other said it was Cain's, but it was actually the same line. I don't really think that's the case. I see some problems with that. I just think that, I don't know, maybe they weren't that creative <laughs> with baby names. Or who knows, maybe the family lines were actually still relatively close together at this point. You know, we tend to think of this as two totally separate people groups, but maybe they still stayed relatively close together. Maybe Cain's kids and Seth's kids knew each other. Now, I don't think that Cain would have been welcome into many family gatherings, but his kids didn't murder Abel. You know, they weren't responsible for what their father did, so who knows? Maybe some of Seth's family was willing to interact with some of Cain's family further down, so maybe they named kids after each other in the family. Or yeah, you don't know. But I do think that the main point of having such similar names is to show us that it's easy to villainize the other side, but ultimately we are all one big human family. And it's really easy to see somebody else as the enemy when really they are still our brother or our sister. And ultimately, I think that's kind of the big point of any genealogy in the Bible is to remind us that we're all from the same families. Maybe it's a little bit harder to trace the further down in history we go, but we're all from the same human family. And we would do well to remember that in how we treat each other. Before we go any further, we have to talk about two documents that I'm guessing you've probably never heard of, but they provide the basis for our text today. They're called the Sumerian King List and the Lagash King List. The Sumerian King List, it's actually a compilation of lists of the reigns of kings from around the time and location of Abraham. So we're talking roughly 2,000 years before Jesus, give or take, is when this document would have been from. And it's this whole compilation of the reigns of Sumerian kings, so we're talking the area of Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, kind of modern-day Iraq area. And this document, this Sumerian king list, is significant because it has an entire section that is called the Antediluvian kings. Anti meaning before, diluvian meaning flood. Kind of like you have antebellum before the war, antediluvian would be before the flood. We have the flood coming up in the next chapter. So there is an antediluvian section of the kings that ruled before a flood. Now remember, this isn't a biblical text. This is an ancient Sumerian text written long before any of these biblical stories would have been written down. And it talks about a number of kings, eight to be exact, that reigned before a flood came. Now we'll talk about flood mythologies and ancient cultures when we get to chapter six, probably in a couple weeks because we have to do something else at the beginning of chapter 6 first next week. But for now, let's just look at the eight kings that are mentioned before this flood. They live extremely long lives. Now, unlike the biblical one that's just tracing normal people who live a long time, the Sumerian one is focused solely on kings, and rather than their ages, it tracks their reigns. And they reigned anywhere between 28,000 years and 43 years thousand years, according to the Sumerian king list. The total just before the flood. So from the very first recorded Sumerian king on this list until the time of the flood that they record, 241,000 years. Now, whether or not you accept that a person could live that long, let alone reign that long as a king, you should be seeing a similarity of extremely long lifespans here. And there's all kinds of funky stuff you can get into about the mythology of the gods of that culture and how the kings would have been considered divine or semi-divine and how then there might have been some sort of supernatural power behind the longevity of those kings, even if they didn't truly live for twenty to 40,000 years at a time or more. It's just interesting that you have a comparison of a list of people who were significant and lived very long lives, and the comparisons get even crazier as we go on. That Sumerian king list includes a number of cities, and it also has little asides about significant accomplishments that some of the kings made. So that's kind of like the biblical text, where it's mostly just people's names, but you occasionally get these little blips where it tells you something that that person accomplished in their lifetime. Another similarity is that the further down you go on the Sumerian king list, the shorter the length of the reign usually is. Just like with the biblical family tree here, the further down you go on the list, usually the lifespan gets shorter. John Walton, a very popular Bible scholar, has noted that although the Genesis 5 list has 10 people, and the Sumerian king list has 8, the Sumerian king list does not mention the first human that they have in their mythology, their version of Adam, and it doesn't mention the flood hero's name, Noah. Now, the Bible genealogy does. This one here in chapter 5, it begins with Adam, and it ends with Noah giving us 10. The Sumerian king list leaves out their first human and their flood hero. So if we take the first human and the flood hero out from the Genesis 5 list, what do you know, we also have a list of eight people. And so some scholars have actually posited a direct correlation between the characters of the Sumerian king list and chapter 5 of Genesis. And I gotta say, I think it actually is possible, particularly when you note that the last antediluvian king listed in the Sumerian king list, Ubaratutu, he was the father of Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim was the flood hero from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Sumerian version of Noah. So the last guy in the Sumerian king list is the father of the flood hero, their Noah. And the last guy before Noah in our list was his father Lamech. So there, there's some similarities there. There are also issues with the view... But there's some stuff that's just a little too close to be coincidence, and uh, we're actually going to touch on it even a little bit more further down. So keep that in the back of your mind, because if you think that's mind-boggling, it gets even crazier. Notably, though, the Sumerian king list ignores any of the kings of a city called Lagash. Lagash was a significant city in the ancient Sumerian world. So it's weird that they left that off. Scholars think that maybe it was a slight, like, the whoever made the Sumerian king list, for whatever reason, they didn't like Lagash, or maybe the king at the time, so they just decided to completely leave it off their list of significant kings because, you know, they had beef with them. So Lagash has its own king list. They go, well, if you're not going to include us, we'll do our own thing. And that document sheds a spotlight of cultural perspective that, Believe it or not, I had never heard this before until I was studying for this podcast episode, so you are hearing something that is still really new to me and is still blowing my mind. A guy by the name of Thorkild Jacobson wrote an article in the Journal of Biblical Literature back in the 80s. I will link to this in the show notes so you can read it if you'd like. It's not exactly the easiest read, but he was comparing this Lagash king list with the genealogy here in chapter 5. And he says there's an amusing sidelight that falls on their amazing longevity from a text listing kings of the city of Lagash. So he's saying that the Lagash king list also has extremely long reigns, just like the Sumerian one did. Continuing, it makes clear that these ancients not only lived extraordinarily long, but also apparently lived extraordinarily slowly. They took their time about growing up. The Lagash King List says about the generation immediately after the flood had subsided, and he goes on to quote the Lagash King List here, In those days, a child spent a hundred years in diapers. After he had grown up, he spent a hundred years without being given any task. He was small. He was dull-witted. His mother watched over him. His straw bedding was laid down in the cow pen. End of quote from the Lagash King List. This is Jacobson continuing. I should mention a most striking similarity between the Lagash List and Hesiod, now Hesiod was a Greek poet from around the time of the Jewish exile, or the time of Homer. So he's now comparing the Legash king list with a writing from an ancient Greek poet. And he says, There's a comparison between the Legash list and Hesiod's silver race. Both have the 100-year childhood, the stupidity, and being watched over by the mother. Hesiod, after telling about the first golden race, says... Next, after these, the dwellers upon Olympus made a second race, of silver, far worse than the first, or the other. They were not like the Golden Ones, either in shape or spirit. A child was a child for a hundred years, looked after and playing by his gracious mother, kept at home an utter imbecile. End of quote, and end of Jacobson's writing. Did you catch the significance of what he said here? I had never heard anyone else point this out before. Yes, there were extremely long lifespans in some of these ancient documents. The Bible's not unique there. There's things like the Sumerian King List and Lagash King List that have people living extraordinarily long lives. But this document, this Lagash King List, also says that they grew up slowly. So just because someone isn't mentioned as having their first kid until they're, say, 200 years old, maybe it's because they aged at a slower pace. According to these texts... A person lived in diapers as basically a baby for the first 100 years of their life. And for 100 years, they're still growing up, going through what would basically be our childhood and teen years. is taken 100 to 200 years. Now, whether or not you believe that that actually ever happened, I think it shines a bit of a light on the culture that the Bible was being written in, so the culture that the Bible was drawing from. So when you have all of these people who aren't having kids until they're in their hundreds or 200s or sometimes even longer, is it possible that that was because they aged more slowly? It's not that they waited 100 years to have kids or just really couldn't find anyone to date. It's that they didn't have the maturity. They almost hadn't reached puberty yet, if you will, even after being 100 years old. It's a really fascinating thought. And again, that may not have to mean that that is Actually, true that human beings aged more slowly back then. But we're trying to consider from within the context of the ancient world and the Bible, how would people have understood it? Would this have made sense from their mindset? And I think it kind of does. If you take an evolutionary perspective with these texts, you might even be able to read some of that into why it took so long for human beings to develop at the time. Possibly, I'm not sure. It's a fascinating thought to me that helps me to get out of my own swimming pool and into the waters of the ancient text and the way that these people would have been thinking. Okay, let's actually look at the chapter itself because we have some interesting things that we can get into. Verse 1 begins, This is the book of the generations of Adam. So this is another Toledot section. In the day that God created man, remember that's humanity, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, he blessed them, called their name Adam, in the day when they were created. And then it begins the genealogy starting with Adam. So note that this is not just the generation of Adam. I think most translations will have it as capital A Adam. But it's Ha Adam, so the word for human. These are the generations of humanity, you could say here. And Walter Brueggemann, another important Bible scholar, points out that while we wonder about the long lifespans that these people had, 700, 800, 900 years In comparison to the Mesopotamian king list, or the Sumerian king list as I called it, their lives are actually painfully short. When you have people in the Mesopotamian king list, or Sumerian one, it's the same thing, living twenty to 40,000 years just as a king, you know, who knows how long they lived before they started to reign, that seems like quite a bit in comparison to somebody who only lives 700 to 900 years. So while it sounds almost fantastical to us to have people living so long, it's actually more grounded than what some of the other cultural documents of the day were saying. Note as well, here in verse 1, that day is yom again, and it is used to refer to the larger part of the creation week. I mentioned that, I think it was maybe when we were in chapter 3, that people get all banal-shaped trying to say that day has to mean 24-hour day, and then you get verses like this where it very clearly can refer to a larger portion. So whether you think that the days of creation were literal 24 hours or not, Totally fine. Totally different discussion. i just like to point out that day can actually mean more than just the 24 hours. In verse 2, it's interesting that both humans are called Adam. They are both human, male and female, and he called their name Adam. He called them human. Verse 3 says that Adam lived 130 years, and he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Now, we've already dealt extensively here in this episode about the length of years that a person lived and how maybe it was symbolic, maybe it was just drawing on popular culture of its time, of people having really long lives in these stories. Maybe it's that people were believed to have aged more slowly. Whatever it is, this doesn't necessarily have to mean that Seth was the third child of Adam and Eve. It never specifically says Adam fathered his third child. And I think the text is trying to focus on Seth as the third or as the replacement, basically, for Abel. But it is possible that there were other kids that they had in this time. These genealogies, we have to remember, are not an extensive list. It's not like if you go to a court record house today and you're trying to find some sort of a family tree to break down how many kids did this person have. That's not the point of this. It's not trying to document every single person. It's just trying to tell you the people who are going to be important for our story today. And we get so focused on the people who aren't in the story. It's kind of like watching Star Wars, the first movie, and you've got the cantina scene. And so you you walk into the bar, the cantina, and we're supposed to be focusing on Luke, Old Ben, Han, and Chewie. But Star Wars fans have gotten so wrapped up in the other characters that almost every other single person in that bar, even if it was a background character, even if it was just flashed on the screen for half a second somewhere, someone in the last 50 years has written some sort of a story about that character, or they've shown up in a novel or a comic book. Some of them have even shown up in other Star Wars movies and TV shows. We get so focused on these background characters when we're supposed to just be focusing on the main characters of the story. So when you see so-and-so begat or fathered this person, and then they had lots of sons and daughters— We're not supposed to be wondering, well, what were those kids' names? We're only focusing on the ones that get us to Noah. So that's why there's this emphasis on these specific people. It's creating a link between the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel from the previous chapter, and Noah that's going to be in the next chapter. But to get there, this chapter exists to bridge the gap to say, here's how we got from Adam, here's his family line. So it is possible that Seth was not the third child. Uh, It's possible there were others in between. I think I even mentioned this last week. Nothing even specifically says that Cain was the very first. I think the text is trying to get that across, but it's not explicitly stated. There are other people who could be in their line. Amusingly enough, the Jewish commentator Rashi has said that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born because he had separated from Eve for that time because they were having a fight after having left the garden. So he basically said that Adam and Eve got divorced for like 100 years and then they got back together and had Seth. That's definitely not in scripture as far as I'm aware. I think Rashi was the only one who who held to that, but it's an amusing perspective to take. What's really fascinating to me, though, about this verse in particular is that there is a slight difference in the wording when compared to Genesis 1, 26-27. When God created man, it was in our image, after our likeness. Remember, God's the one speaking there, so he says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. When Seth was born, though, it was in Adam's likeness, after his image. So not only have we replaced God with Adam, We've also flip-flopped likeness and image. With the creation of Adam, it was in our image after our likeness. Now with Seth, it's in our likeness after our image. So we've changed which word goes with which preposition, and we've changed which person is here. So in Genesis 1, God created man in his image like his likeness, or according to his likeness. But humanity procreates in his own likeness after his own image. I'm not 100% sure why it's written like that, but I have an idea, and I think it's because likeness means form or shape. God did not make us in his form or shape because he has a spirit. He made us according to a form that was significant to him, but not in that form because he doesn't have a form. It was according to this ideal. He made us like his likeness, but in his image or as his image. Whereas we as humans produce other humans that do look like us, so they are in our likeness, like the image that the first human beings were. And they are according to the representation that we all are of Yahweh. I'm not entirely sure how well that holds up, but it's just a thought I have because I have not seen commentators addressing this. If anything, people focus on why this was in Adam's likeness instead of God's. But they almost never mention the preposition switch here of in our image, after our likeness, and in our likeness after our image. It's just not something that they seem to address. So I noticed that, and that's the best guess I have now. Ask me again in a few years, and maybe I'll have a a better one. But what some people do try to focus on is why Adam is mentioned here instead of God. Why is it that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness and image? Why isn't it God's image anymore? And a lot of people will look at this and say it's something negative that's being said here, that Adam and Eve were created in God's image, but since we're after the fall, that's not true of humans beyond that. This was very popular at the time of the Reformation, and it has remained popular in a lot of commentaries, but I don't think that's accurate. I don't think this verse is trying to get across anything negative, negative. and especially when we get to Genesis 9, after the flood, God says that all human beings are his image, his representation. So I don't think that matches to say that here, humans are no longer God's image. They are the image of each other. I don't think that's the point. I think it's actually something positive to say that through Adam, the image, the representation of Yahweh is being transmitted. So there's a transmission of the image and likeness of Yahweh to all humans, but it's also comparing Yahweh's creative power with those of the human. So by saying that Seth is now in the image and likeness of Adam, that's not saying a bad thing, it's actually saying a positive thing, that the human is able to carry out God's creative acts. Just like God passed on his image and his likeness to humanity, to Adam and to Eve, now the humans are able to continue that work. So it's a hopeful thing, it's not a negative thing, saying that we are continuing to be in God's image, or as his image, and his representatives. Now, the next several verses are this formula of so-and-so begot or fathered this person, they lived this long, they had more kids, and they died. So that's basically all of verses 4 through 22. And verse 22, we have the first thing that breaks up the narrative, and this is the description of Enoch. We get a very tiny detail about his life. So let's actually look at verse 21, where it talks about Enoch after he was born. His father's name was Yed or a lot of English translations will say Jared. Verse 21 says, Enoch lived sixty and five years, he was sixty-five, and he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah three hundred years, he fathered sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty-five years. And Enoch walked with God, so we get that a second time, it's trying to get a point across, and he was not, for God took him. And that's it, the next verse gets into his son, Methuselah. A lot of people look at this and they say, oh, Enoch walked with God, that means he was a godly person, he was a really good guy. And yes, but you can't just stop there. Because you have to think about when was the last time in our story so far that a human being was described as walking with God? Or if I can put it another way, when is the last time that God walked with or to a person? it's all the way back in the garden where God quite literally appears in some sort of physical form, more than likely, and walks to where Adam and Eve were. And a lot of people think that maybe they had a habit of walking together at the end of the day or whatever. Back in chapter 3, we talked about why that may or may not be the case. But either way, that is the last time that walking and God were put together. So it was implied that Adam and Eve should have been or used to be walking with God, whether you want to take that metaphorically or literally, the idea is that they were in union and communion with God. And since that was the last time that was brought up, when we have that description here of Enoch, it's like he was living an Eden existence, even though he was outside of Eden. He is the first person that we really see get back into communion with God. Now, the entirety of his life, though, is just from verses 19 through 24. So five verses, and really the only detail we have with him, aside from his father's name and his son's name, is that he walked with God, and then verse 24 says he was not for God, took him, which we'll get to in just a second here. But the only description we have of him is that he walked with God. He returned to this Eden communion. So how exactly he did that, what exactly that looked like in his life, we don't know. But it's drawing a very distinct hyperlink to say this was an Eden person. This was someone who got it. This was someone who lived out the line of the woman to the fullest. He brought life into the world. He lived the way that humans were supposed to. I tend to think his walking with God was in a metaphorical sense. There are some people who would look at that and think it was literal because God sometimes took a physical form through the Tanakh. Several stories have him appearing to humans. So it's possible that he did take on a physical form and actually walked with Enoch. I think that misses the point of the metaphor, of the analogy. In fact, the Net Bible has a really good note of how this phrase of walking with God really just means that they got along. They were on the same wavelength, if you will. It reads, The special formula, walked with God, is used only of Enoch and Noah. So we'll get this in chapter 6, verse 9. Though Abraham walked before God... In Genesis 17, 1 and 24, 40, the specific phrase, walked with God, is used only of Enoch and Noah. Continuing on. While this formula of special intimacy is often understood in terms of moral uprightness and obedience, the main reading in the tradition does not concern obedience, but privileged entry into the secrets of God. Pause for a second here. Did you catch what the note just said? This isn't just about saying Enoch was a good, moral, upright person. It's saying that he had some sort of insider information from God. He was a mystic. He was someone who knew more than the average person would have. He was a very spiritual guy, a guru, if you will. They continue. Thus, Enoch subsequently became a clustering point for apocalyptic traditions. Pause. If you're scratching your head and raising your eyebrows a little bit at me right now, like saying, how are you getting out of this, that Enoch was some sort of spiritual guru or mystic? Isn't that a little bit too much? Well, no, this isn't just me talking. It was actually a really common tradition in both Jewish and Christian stories to have Enoch as some sort of a person who had divine revelation that other people did not. In fact, there's an entire two apocryphal books that carry the name of Enoch and tells stories about this time in human history and even describe some of the divine wisdom that Enoch was given and consider him to be a prophet. And if that sounds crazy to you, here's something even crazier. It's referenced in the Bible. Actually, in the New Testament. The next-to-last book of the Bible is Jude. It's this really tiny letter that was written by a guy named Jude or Judah. Some people believe that he was the half-brother of Jesus. He's described as being the brother of James, but there are a handful of Jameses in the New Testament and early church history. So who exactly it is is not entirely clear. But one way or the other, he's writing this letter to a church, and he's trying to warn them about some false teachers, some bad preachers who had popped up in their area. And he's drawing on all of these different analogies from the Tanakh, and especially the book of Genesis, to prove his point. All kinds of rabbit holes we could go down there, but this is not an episode on Jude, so we will try to sidestep those as much as possible and just jump to verse 14. Jude only has one chapter, so it just goes by the verse divisions a lot of times. So Jude 14 says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, bad preachers, heretics, whatever you want to call them, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he continues with his message against them. Do you get the idea? He thinks they're ungodly. Maybe he should have thrown another one in there just to get the point across. (laughs) But in all seriousness, verses 14 and 15 have this message that Enoch prophesied before the flood, saying that Yahweh is going to come with thousands upon thousands of holy ones. Now, a lot of English translations might say saints, but this would have more than likely referred to an army of angels. So he's coming with this army of thousands of holy ones, of angels, to bring judgment upon everyone who has lived out the way of the serpent, who has done evil or wickedness. The problem is, that's not in the Old Testament anywhere. Enoch does not show up anywhere else in the entirety of the Tanakh. You have the person in Cain's line in chapter 4 who's named Enoch as well, but that's a different guy more than likely. You have these few references here in chapter 5, and then in chapters 25 and 46... And then once in Exodus, Numbers, and First Chronicles, you have reference to a different person by the name of Enoch, and some English translations have his name as Hanok, which is kind of amusing because Hanok is actually the way that you would pronounce Enoch's name in Hebrew, so I'm not sure why these translations thought it was a good idea to say Enoch in the beginning of Genesis and then translate the exact same name differently later on. But Hanok would technically be the name for this guy, and really all of these guys. (laughs) But for this particular Hanok, or I will say Enoch now for simplicity's sake, for this particular Enoch that we have in chapter 5, we know nothing else about him beyond what these two verses say. Yet Jude, considered to be a part of our inspired scriptures, quotes from the book of First Enoch, which is not considered to be a part of our inspired scriptures. He's not just drawing this off of some tradition. He's actually quoting from the book of Enoch. And I have a, a copy up here online. You can find it pretty easily, actually, you can just search read first Enoch in English or something like that, and you'll get some translations of it. So let me read to you the first chapter from the Book of Enoch. It's pretty short, and you'll see the verse that Jude is quoting from. It begins, The words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous, who will be living in the day of tribulation, when all the wicked and godless are to be removed. And he took up his parable and said, Enoch, a righteous man, whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens, what the angels showed me, and from them I heard everything. And from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation, but for a remote one which is for to come. Concerning the elect I said, and took up my parable concerning them, the Holy Great One will come forth from his dwelling, and the Eternal God will tread upon the earth, even on Mount Sinai, and appear from his camp, and appear in the strength of his might from the heaven of heavens. And all will be smitten with fear, and the watchers will quake. We'll get into the watchers next week. That's a really fun discussion. Great fear and trembling will seize them until the ends of the earth, and the high mountains will be taken, the high hills will be made low, they'll melt like wax before the flame, and the earth will be wholly rent, in sunder. All that is upon the earth shall perish. There will be judgment upon all humanity. But with the righteous he will make peace. He will protect the elect, and mercy shall be upon them. And they will all belong to God. They will all be prospered. They will all be blessed. He will help them all, and his light shall appear to them, and he will make peace with them. And here's the part that Jude quotes. Behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly, to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's the end of chapter 1. So you can see pretty clearly that is almost word for word what Jude said. So he's drawing upon this apocryphal book, and that gets into a whole debate of what significance should that have. I'd say most Christians probably don't even realize that books like this exist. The only ancient literature that they ever read is the Bible, so they're not even familiar with the texts that existed at this time and that the Bible sometimes drew on. Every once in a while, you'll get some people on the internet who tend to think that a book like this was intentionally hidden and meant to be left off of the Bible for some ill intent. But that just goes too far and gets into some really wacky territory. Very few groups have ever considered a book like First Enoch to be a canonical scripture. Pretty much everyone agrees that it's supplementary material. It's not necessarily inspired by God. But what we miss out on is the fact that it can be very helpful for understanding the culture and times of the Bible. So we have to read anything in it with a grain of salt, but we also have to understand that these are texts that the authors of our New Testament especially would have been extremely familiar with and even quoted and referenced like we have with Jude here. So just because Jude is quoting something outside of the Bible, don't let that upset or concern you. The Bible did not just drop down from heaven as a completely unique document that had no bearing or relation to the culture around it. God used human authors within human cultures, with human personalities, to write these scriptures. And so they drew on the culture of their day and what they knew. So it is completely consistent with the rest of the Bible for Jude to be drawing on this tradition of Enoch. Now for our purposes here today, talking about Enoch, does that mean that this actually happened? Was he really a prophet? Did he really have this kind of divine esoteric knowledge? Well, maybe. I think you can absolutely get that from the description that he walked with God. In fact, going back to the Net Bible notes I was reading from a little bit earlier, they mention this. They say, See the extended book, meaning first Enoch, bearing his name in the Apocrypha, summarizing God's secrets revealed to him about the end of history. It's a very apocryphal book, talking about end times sort of things. So they continue. Obviously, such a later development is only remotely derived from our verses here in Genesis 5. The mode of his life-ending, God took him could suggest something other than death, and that is likely the root of much later speculation. But as this phrase stands in isolation, nothing can be made of it. Even in this terse form, it reflects that Enoch represents some role in overcoming the utter discontinuity of God and humankind. So they're starting to get now into verse 24, which says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Literally in Hebrew, it reads, Enoch walked with God, and there was no him. (laughs) I kind of like the simplicity of that. What exactly that means, we have no idea. The Hebrew text here does not specifically say that he escaped death. It just says that he was not, so it's kind of left ambiguous. Now, where a lot of people get the idea that he never died is a read-in from Hebrews 11, which is one of the only New Testament references of Enoch aside from Jude, and a couple of times he shows up in the genealogy. But Hebrews 11, verse 5, mentions, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. That word that is translated translated <laughs> in the King James, or a lot of translations will say taken away or taken up, is a word that has the idea of being shifted from one place to another. In Acts 7, verse 16, it says they were transferred or carried over. It's the same word here into Sechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money. So it's talking about taking a body from one place and putting it in another. In Galatians 1, Paul uses this verb to say that the people had been removed or transferred, changed over from the grace that they had in Christ to now trying to work for their salvation and focusing on their good deeds instead of their faith. And then interestingly enough, Jude actually uses the same word again a few verses earlier from where we had been, saying that ungodly heretics were transforming the grace of God into license to do whatever they wanted to do in their lives. So it's a word saying that something has fundamentally changed, there's a shift, something has moved from one place to another, and Hebrews 11 gives the idea that he didn't die, something happened where one day he disappeared. How that happened... No clue. The Bible does not specify. But I do think it's interesting that the verse specifically says God took him back in Genesis 5.24 now, because the last time that God took a human from the dirt, he rested him in a garden. So now God takes this human, Enoch, from the dirt, from the land, from the earth, and I think the implication is that he was going to rest. He took him to a place of rest. Now, I have to sidetrack here, because you have to ask the question, why Enoch? Of all the people in scripture, why him? And we barely even know anything about him. We have these stories of heroes of the faith that we tend to look up to. People like Moses or David or Abraham or, you know, fill in the blank with so many others. Why Enoch? All of those people we talk about in Sunday school stories, they followed Yahweh. As far as we know, they did just as great stuff, sometimes maybe even greater than Enoch. We literally know nothing about Enoch, aside from tradition and a couple of verses. So why in the world would this guy be taken up? In the Bible, you also have this happen to Elijah at the end of his ministry. So these are the only two people in the entirety of history that, according to the Bible story, have not had to die. Why them? And Elijah is a whole other conversation for another day, so I'm not going to deal with him today. What was so special about Enoch? What was so unique about him that couldn't be written down in this story? but that he got taken up. Why did he get to escape death when you have all of these other people who maybe would have been more deserving? Why him? And strangely enough, our answer actually kind of comes from the Sumerian king list. All the way back from the very beginning of our episode today, we talked about that document that has all of those kings listed out from before the flood in Sumeria. Now, if we put those lists side by side of the Sumerian one and the Genesis 5 one, there is a striking similarity That just kind of gives me chills when I read it. Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. So that's a whole thing in and of itself, that the seventh person in this list just so happens to be one who gets taken up to heaven. But it gets even weirder. If you compare it to the Sumerian king list, the seventh king in that list is a guy named en Now, we're not told a bunch about en but the one thing we are told is that he gets taken up into heaven to sit with the gods, specifically with these gods, Shamash and Adad, and that there he was given supernatural wisdom. Let that sink in for a minute. You have two lists, one in the Bible, one in an ancient Sumerian document from before the time the Bible was written, and both lists have a seventh guy who got taken up from the earth to live in the presence of the gods and get wisdom. That cannot be coincidental. That is so awesome. That is, I think, the key to understanding why Enoch, of all people, would get taken up into heaven. It was drawing on this tradition of a seventh person in a lineage who gets taken out of the earth, translated, transferred, shifted up into heaven without having to die, and there he gets knowledge that would not have been obtainable otherwise. And if you think that's crazy, it's about to get even crazier. Because the one god that en is said to sit before, is the god Shamash. Shamash was a sun god. You say, okay, what's the big deal? How long is Enoch said to have lived? 365 years. The number of days in a solar calendar. Come on. (laughs) There is no way that is coincidence, especially when a number of these cultures, including the Hebrew one, used a lunar or lunar-solar calendar something that wasn't entirely just based on the sun. So a lot of times it would have had fewer days in a year than a solar calendar would have. So there is absolutely no way it's coincidence that this seventh guy in the list lives 365 years when you have another parallel list of ancient kings with the seventh in that list getting taken up to heaven as well and being in the presence of a sun god who would have been responsible for the 365-day solar year. That's insane, and I absolutely love it. Uh, We still have a little bit here in chapter 5, so let's look at a few more people. Verse 27 talks about Enoch's son, Methuselah. Most people just know Methuselah as living the longest of any human being, 969 years old, according to this list. Still significantly less than the kings in the Sumerian king list, but still a good long while. Interestingly enough, a lot of traditions have Methuselah's death as happening at the time of the flood. So basically, right around when the flood happened is when Methuselah would have died. That's not specifically stated in scripture, but it is present in a lot of traditions that his death would have been roughly around the time of the flood. And that reminds us that there is a lot of overlap in these genealogies. These people didn't live in a vacuum. Many of them would have known each other. In fact, E.A. Spicer has noted that Adam probably would have died in the days of Lamech, if there are no gaps in the genealogy. So assuming that you just have these ten generations as it's presented here in the text, Adam would have been alive in the days of Noah's father. That's crazy. And then even when you continue on past the flood, Noah would have lived into the time of Abraham. So you have very possibly that even up until just before the days of Noah, someone may have been able to find Adam. And you kind of have to wonder, what kind of life did he live? Did he try to avoid people? Was he popular in his community? We don't know, but it is a very interesting thought, especially when you start to realize how much some of these stories and lives would have overlapped. Now, in verse 28, we begin the story of Methuselah's son, Lamech. Now, I will often say Lamech instead of Lamech, so I kind of have an E sound there instead of an A sound. Pretty much every translation I could find has his name spelled as Lamech, L-A-M-E-C-H. And that's kind of unfortunate because that's not actually how his name is spelled in Hebrew most of the time. Some languages have it where the spelling of a name can change depending on what position it is in in a sentence. English is not one of those. My name is spelled Colin, C-O-L-I-N, no matter what you're saying about me. If I'm the subject of the sentence, the object, wherever I show up, after a preposition, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. My name is always spelled the same way. But in some languages the spelling of a name can change a little bit depending on the position that it is in so that it matches the cadence of the sentence. Hebrew is one of those languages, so you can have slightly different spellings of a name depending on where it is in a sentence. And that's true of Lamech here, both in chapter 5 and also the Lamech that's in chapter 4. The very first time that they are introduced because of the part of the sentence that they are in, their name is spelled Lamech with an A, but then every single other time it shows up, it's Lemic with an E. So it was just to make it fit the cadence of that particular sentence that the first time it's spelled with an A, when really the name would probably have normally been spelled with an E. So I kind of wish that these translations would have just gone with the E, since that's the way it is 95% of the time for this guy. But for whatever reason, they chose the very first one, even though that was the outlier, just based on a grammatical oddity. So it's Lamech. If you say Lamech, I am not going to appear out of nowhere and hit you upside the head with a Bible dictionary. Pronounce it however you like. As much as possible, I try to get as close as possible to what the names would have been in their ancient context. So this Lamech is extremely different from the Lamech of chapter 4. The Lamech in Cain's genealogy was an anti-king, someone who married two women and bragged to them about either someone that he had just killed or his desire to kill someone. We talked about that last week. So you can go back to our discussion on chapter 4 for more about that Lamech. Really, really bad dude. But here, this Lamech is presented as a good person. And if we skip ahead for a second to verse 31... All the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. So the good Lamech, the one that we're talking about here today in chapter 5, Seth's line, lives 777 years. Now, we've already talked today and in previous episodes about the significance of seven being about completion and fullness in the Bible. So you have a guy who lives three sevens, 777 years. And do you remember a little detail about the bad Lamech in chapter 4? About what he claimed should be given him, even though he was willing to kill someone? Do you remember? If not, it's okay. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 4, verse 24. Lemech says, If Cain will be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech will be seventy-sevenfold. You catch on now? The bad Lamech says, If Cain will be protected seven times over, I deserve seventy-seven times. And then the good Lamech lives seven hundred and seventy-seven years. Come on. (laughs) That is awesome. That is the way that the Bible works. And it just builds on these little Easter eggs all throughout where you have Cain being protected by God seven times. This bad Lemmick says, I deserve it 77 times. And then a good Lemmick comes along and lives 777 years. Each one just builds a seven on the other. That is fantastic. And this is the kind of stuff so many preachers miss. They're so focused on trying to find some sort of Christological, Christ-centered, Jesus-centered meaning in this that they totally miss these wonderful details that the authors put in there for us. And it doesn't stop there. Can I go on one other rabbit trail here with you? Go with me really fast here. To Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often, if my brother sins against me, should I forgive him? Until seven times? And we have to ask, where did he get seven times? Why would he just pull that number out? I think he knew the story of Cain, and he was drawing on the seven times protection that God had put on Cain. Gets even crazier because Jesus' answered to him is, I'm not going to say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, almost every translation I can find says 70 times seven. And if any of you grew up on Veggie Tales like I did, I just remember the one character doing the math of that and saying it's 490. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, just YouTube it. You have to see it. You can find it. Just type in VeggieTales, how many times do we need to forgive? I'm sure you will be able to find it. But that's the idea that most translations have, is he's saying 70 times 7. Jesus is doing some sort of divine math where you have to forgive people 490 times, and most preachers will acknowledge that doesn't mean you can keep a tally. It means that you shouldn't be keeping a tally. I don't think that times here ever meant multiplication. We think of that because we use that in English, you know, 4 times 5 is 20. But I don't think that's actually how English would have expressed multiplication in the days of our early English translations. Maybe it was, but even if it was, I really don't think that's the way that Greek and Hebrew would have expressed it. See, when Jesus says 70 times 7, I think what he was actually saying based on the grammar of the Greek in that passage is that it was 70 times and 7. So in other words, he was saying, not that you have to forgive 70 multiplied by 7, 490 times, but 70 times and 7, so 77 times. That should sound familiar to you. He's drawing on the story of Lamech. If Lamech represented selfish desire to the extreme, where somebody said, I deserve protection to the 77th degree... Jesus' followers are intended to be the opposite of that. And he says, you should forgive to the 77th degree. Where Lamech was hoping for forgiveness for himself to the 77th degree, you should be willing to give it to others to that same amount. And then, amusingly, just to throw this in, Jesus followed up that story with the story of a king. Remember what Lamech's name was? It's almost like king backwards. You just have to switch the L and the M in Hebrew. Melech is the word for king, and Lamech is this guy's name. So Jesus then follows up this whole thing with Peter with a story of a king, a Melech, who forgives other people, and then one of them refuses to live in the favor that the king has granted him, which kind of sounds like the story of Cain. He refused to live in the favor that God was offering him if he would have made the right decision. The Bible ain't boring, kids. This is fantastic, the way that this is all written to hyperlink back and forth. It has so many layers. It's like an onion. Going back to chapter 5, we gotta finish up with Noah here. Because Lamech prophesies over Noah. And verse 29 says, Lamech calls his name Noah and says, This will comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which Yahweh has cursed. There has been some debate about what the comfort or consolation is that Noah is supposed to provide. I think a lot of people just automatically assume it's talking about how he's going to bring salvation for humanity through the ark during the flood, like he's going to keep a small amount of humans alive during the time of God's judgment. But that's not necessarily comfort or consolation. The word that's used there is the Hebrew word naham, and that's important Because Noah's name in Hebrew is Noach. So there's a play between Naham and Noach. But what's really weird is they don't come from the same root word. They are not the same word. Naham and Noach are actually two separate words from two separate roots. So a lot of times you'll have a name in the Bible and then some significance of the name is given, like the person was named this because this would happen. But that's not the case here. Noach does not come from Naham. So there's something weird going on here with the author doing a very strange play on words where he's drawing on two similar words but without using the exact one that would have been the root of Noach's name. The word Naham is actually a word that really means to be sorry or to regret something. It's the same word that is used of Yahweh in Genesis 6 verse 6 To say that he repented of creating humanity because of how wicked they had become. He felt sorry. He regretted it in a way. That's this word that's translated comfort or consolation about Noah. He will bring comfort. So literally it's saying he will bring regret, sorrow over the. It's really weird. It has a nuance of meaning. It can mean comfort or consolation. Just like in English, words can have multiple meanings, so they can in Hebrew. So we don't have to say that this specifically means he's going to bring sorrow instead of comfort, but there's definitely a play here on how Noah is said to bring something, some sort of consolation or pain that humanity is feeling, and then the same word shows up in the next chapter just a few verses later to say that Yahweh is feeling pain, and because of how humanity was acting. So I I wouldn't necessarily say that having the Ark is necessarily consolation. So there is a debate throughout the theological world of what exactly it means for Noah to bring consolation. Rashi, again, that Jewish commentator from way back, claimed, "...he will give us rest from the toil of our hands." Before Noah came, they did not have plowshares, and he prepared these tools for him, and the land was producing thorns and thistles when they sowed wheat because of the curse of the first man. But in Noah's time, the curse subsided, So in other words, he's drawing on this tradition that said Noah invented the plow. So you have the curse on the land that made it really hard to work for humanity, and Noah did something to create a tool, a form of technology, if you will, to make work easier. Now, there is no indication in other traditions that that was the case. It's really hard to find any kind of other reference to Noah being the inventor of a plow. I think part of the connection was with his being a gardener, and specifically someone with a vineyard, which we will get to when we get to chapter 9. But either way, I think that's just what Rashi was drawing on there, and there's really no other documentation or support for that thought. What is clearer, though, is a connection back to the Garden Curse. Lamech specifically says that Noah is going to do something that helps to alleviate the curse that God brought on, and whatever that may have looked like, we're not sure. But he says that it is going to be concerning our work and the toil of our hands. Our toil is the Hebrew word itzavon. Itzavon only shows up three times in the entirety of the Tanakh, and all three are here in Genesis. All three we have already seen. See, it is the word that is translated sorrow or pain from Genesis 3. It's the word where God says in Genesis 3.16 that he would multiply the sorrow, the emotional agony or anxiety related to conception, and then also that Adam would have to work in sorrow to get food from the ground. So right here, Lennox says that Noah is going to reverse that. He is going to bring something about where that anxiety is no longer associated with working the ground. And so whether that meant that he did create something like the plow, some sort of technology that made farming easier, or some people have even pointed to the fact that he did cultivate a vineyard. That maybe it was uh, the creation of wine that brings some sort of comfort to a person after a hard day's work. We don't know exactly what that meant. But it's not saying that he was going to save humanity in the flood. That's not the purpose of this prophecy here. What exactly Lemek is referring to, we're not sure. But it's something that specifically reverses the curse of the anxiety we get from living on the land. Now, chapter 5 ends really abruptly. We have these verses here about Lamech's prophecy of Noah. Then it says, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years. He fathered sons and daughters. All the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that's the end of chapter 5. It then goes into a whole different narrative in chapter 6. So this genealogy ends without any kind of real resolution or closure. And the reason for that is that chapters 6 through 9 are this parenthesis, if you will, in the middle of this genealogy. You actually have to go all the way to chapter 9 to finish Noah's lineage. It picks up at the end of chapter 9. So after the entirety of the flood story, all of that stuff that we'll get to in the next several weeks, chapter 9, verse 28 ends, Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So you have to go all that way just to get to the end of Noah's story, and then chapter 10 gives you the genealogy of his sons. So we have quite a big blip that happens in between the very end of this genealogy here, chapters 6 through 9. One other thing I can note here is that any time Noah's sons aren't listed, they are listed in order of Shem, Ham, and Japheth which is a little bit weird when you consider that Genesis 10.1 says that Japheth was the oldest brother. A lot of times the oldest would get mentioned first, especially when we're talking about genealogy, when we're kind of going in chronological order. So you would think it would be Japheth first, and then whoever it would be next. We're not sure if Shem or Ham was older. But there's two ways that you can look at this that provide an answer. One is you could say that Shem was always listed first because he was the ancestor of the Jews. Jews are a Semitic people, or Shemitic. They are from Shem. That's where we get saying Semitic. So since Shem was the ancestor through which the Jews came, this is a story about the Jews. He would come first. That's possible. But then there's another possibility that Shem actually really was the oldest. See, the Hebrew grammar of Genesis ten twenty one is not entirely clear. In English, it reads, To Shem also the father of the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. So we assume the brother of Japheth the elder, that means that Japheth is the older one. But when you're reading in Hebrew, it could go either way. It could be saying that Japheth was the elder, or that Shem was actually the elder brother. So in that case, the order of Shem, Ham, and Japheth totally makes sense. Either way, it doesn't make a huge difference, but I just wanted to point that out because I haven't seen too many commentators draw attention to the fact that if Shem was the youngest, he is mentioned first, or even the possibility that maybe he actually was the oldest, just depending on how you look at chapter 10, verse 21. So what is the point of all of this? Hopefully, you've seen that there are ways to read these Bible genealogies without falling asleep. And the important thing to remember is not to get lost in trying to discern some hidden meaning or some message about Jesus or the gospel in the names or numbers. We actually kind of have to step back into a bird's eye view of a passage like this to see the larger patterns and to see how they connect, compare, or contrast with other passages of scripture and even with other ancient documents that may be similar. I also think it's significant that people whose lives took up hundreds upon hundreds of years here have the entirety of their existence condensed to just a few words on a page. Most of the people in this chapter only get a couple of verses to their name. We're not given much information about them at all. And maybe they did fantastic things, maybe they lived full lives, maybe they developed some new technology or had some sort of invention or something. I mean, we're talking about the beginning of humanity here, so there's a lot that you can invent and discover for the very first time. And yet they're still condensed to this very, very brief description of their life. And at the end of the day, that is true of all of us. No matter how long you live, eventually your life is going to be condensed to a few words on a headstone or a few paragraphs on a handout at a funeral home. And we have to consider, in light of the brevity of life, what do we want to be remembered for? Do we want to be the kind of person who lived a life where there's not much to say about them? Or do we want to be the kind of person who, in the midst of people whose lives don't have much to be said of, a little note can be made about the great things that we did and the ways that we helped our fellow humans. I realize the majority of people will never make it into a history book. Most of us don't do things that end up getting world recognition. But that's okay. Have you at least lived a life that brought more life into the lives of the people around you? Have you at least lived like someone in the line of the woman, who is not bringing death and devouring destruction into the world, but someone who is going to make this place that we live in a little bit better? Many of us feel insignificant in the light of history, but at the end of the day, if you live your life in a way that brings more life, that makes other people's lives better, if you can live in a way that brings smiles and joy and happiness, the light of God into somebody else's life, you have lived well, and you can claim your place as an addition to chapter 5 of the line of the woman, somebody who brings life into the world. That's beautiful. All right, that is going to close up Chapter 5. Can you believe we actually got a full episode out of this chapter? Hopefully you saw that there is so much there that we can draw a lot of really awesome details I loved going into. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Next week, we are going to begin Chapter 6. Now, we are not going to do the entirety of Chapter 6. And we're just going to cover roughly the first five verses or so next week. Because we have to talk about the incident with the sons of God. These are some of the most significant verses in the entirety of the Bible, and most people just glance right over them without realizing what's there. There is an incredibly huge debate that goes on about just the first five verses of chapter six, and in my opinion, it basically becomes a litmus test for whether or not someone is willing to read the Bible within its ancient context. So this is about as key as it will get when it comes to understanding the ancient world of the Bible. So next week, we are going to get into all of that. And if you have enjoyed or been intrigued by the times that I've talked about the serpent, the Nakash, or any of that supernatural stuff that we just don't usually tend to talk about in Bible study, you have to tune back in for next week with chapter six, because that is the entirety of what we're going to be talking about. There is so much weird, wacky stuff that is going on in just those few verses that the average person has never heard before. So, until then, stay curious and keep asking questions about the Uncut and Unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. You can also rate and review on your podcast app to help other people find it. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash thebibleuncut, where you'll get exclusive access to bonus content. You can also check out our website, thebibleuncut.com, for recommended resources and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.